The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to our scripture this evening, to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, where we're beginning this brief series on prophecies of the Messiah and beginning tonight looking at the first part of the chapter, chapter 40, a very critical key passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 at verse 1, hear God's word, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of our God. Advent is a season in which we are reminded of the glory of God being revealed. It's in many of our hymns. We hear it declared, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. And we are proclaiming and we are rejoicing in something that has happened in history. Jesus Christ came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the Gospel of John says. And this beginning of Isaiah 40 is like a grand symphony overture that plays samples of all the music of a great symphony that is to follow as 
the second half of the book of Isaiah unfolds these wonderful prophecies of the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah. And we heard this morning, Isaiah 53, this clear declaration of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And the prophet begins this section with this word of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What is it like for the glory of God to be revealed? We want to think about that this evening as we look at this passage. And the first point I want us to see is that the glory of God deals with the problem of our sin, the most fundamental problem of our human condition, the problem of our sin. The context of Isaiah 40, if you back up a little bit, is this very discouraging ending to Isaiah 39 where um, envoys from Babylon come at Hezekiah's request and he shows them things that he shouldn't show them of the various riches of his realm. And in Isaiah 39 verse 5, we see this declaration from Isaiah to King Hezekiah because of what he has done and in the unfolding of the plan of God, he said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Isaiah is prophesying about a hundred years before it would take place the Babylonian captivity of the nation of Judah, a very uh, awful experience of the nation being defeated militarily and taken away into captivity in Jerusalem, the temple, all left in ruins. I was thinking about that this week. Some of you, most of you, have been hearing over the past weeks about the California wildfires. I didn't realize until this week that the PCA church in Paradise, California was incinerated. You can read about it in your bulletin where there's an MNA, our Mission to North America Disaster Response, and we're seeking to help that cause. But the bulletin announcement says that not only was the building incinerated, but every member's home was incinerated. Wouldn't that be something to be a church where all of our homes were gone? Well, that's a disaster for sure. I don't know if there was any loss of life among the members of the church, but compare that to what happened to Judah, what was prophesied in Isaiah 39 about this destruction that was come in Jerusalem would essentially be incinerated and leveled and many people killed, taken into captivity and chained, some with hooks in their noses. Ruin and destruction. And it's on that note that Isaiah 40 begins with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then what is the first thing that Isaiah addresses? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
Isaiah proclaims comfort and immediately puts it in the context of this great fundamental problem of our sin. Why is that? Well, because it was the nation's sin that had brought them to this terrible exile. Century after century, the children of Israel had turned away from the Lord again and again. Yes, there had been times of revival and return, but this pattern of turning away to idolatry, worshiping false gods, the problem of their sin, the same problem that you and I have. Most people don't think that their most serious problem is the problem of their sin. That's not how most Americans think, that's for sure. What do most Americans lose sleep over? We could ask that. What do you lose sleep over? What is the one thing you would wish you could change? Maybe a financial situation in your life, maybe a problem with your health, maybe a relationship problem of some kind, some unfulfilled longing or dream that you would have for your life to come to pass, maybe the need for guidance, all kinds of problems that we have and we have needs about. But Scripture declares that the most fundamental problem is our sin that separates us from our God. Of course, it's nothing new that Americans don't think of the sin of their hearts as the most fundamental problems. When the Son of God walked on this earth, when Jesus Christ is about his public ministry, what do the people really want? Well, some of them want spiritual things, of course, but by and large, they want physical healing or they want to be provided food, so they follow him around. He did these miracles of the loaves and the, and the fish. Or maybe they wanted political change to throw off the oppression of Rome. Let's have political change. These things are not wrong to want, of course. You remember the time when uh, one one of two brothers came to the Lord and said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. There's a problem that he wanted Jesus Christ to fix. We can imagine that as well. Did these people see sin as the most fundamental issue of their lives? No, they did not. And so it is interesting and it is fitting. And it is something of the revealing of the glory of God to first show us our most fundamental need. After this long night of sin and warfare and exile and desolation, the prophet is saying that this darkness brought on by the people's sins is going to be brought to an end by God revealing his glory, as we will see. John Calvin speaks of, he says, the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. We're going to see that God comes. Behold your God, the prophet says. But when God draws near, when he reveals his glory, he comes to deal with this problem, this basic problem of sin. And so we know Jesus came to die. Isaiah 53, this morning, we saw that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so there's this description of sins forgiven. It's interesting here that in verse 2 he says, uh, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Does that mean that the 70 years of captivity really atoned for the people's sins? Could that atone for generations of sins of the nation, let alone that single generation's sin? Could that atone for one sin? And we know the answer in Scripture is very clear that no, no amount of of captivity or hardship or the blood of bulls and goats could atone for sin. All of that atonement, all of that punishment was looking ahead to the ultimate atonement that would come through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came to deal with this fundamental problem of sin. Have you received the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners? It is a free gift. It is a gift of grace through Jesus Christ to see the glory of God revealed in the work of Christ enables us to take a drastically different view of what our fundamental problem is and to see it for what it is and to turn us from that sin to Jesus Christ and all his sufficiency through what he did on the cross, that by his grace, through trusting in him, we become adopted children of God, heirs of God, free from condemnation, free from guilt. What comfort the gospel brings. I think of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite Christmas movies, but it's really a very moralistic movie. You could say that there's a glimmer of the gospel in that, in a sense, George Bailey, the star, is, in a sense, dimly a figure of Christ. He gives up his money. He gives up his life to save the town you know, and uh, gives up his dreams, and so the town is saved. Well, the gospel is much clearer than that. The gospel is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, gave himself for our sins. But secondly, we see the glory of God revealed supremely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 through 5, we see this voice crying, this voice crying out, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Made low. In, Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, we see that Luke quotes this very text as fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist is preaching, is declaring, prepare the way for the Lord, repent, Luke 3, 7. Therefore, he said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And this picture of the valley's being exalted, the mountain and hills being made low, really it's talking about preparing for the coming of a king. George H.W. Bush died yesterday. I remember in his second election for president, we were in New Jersey pastoring a church there, and he came to the area, and our family went to see him and hear him give his speech. And 
they prepared for the coming of a president by closing off lots of the roads and putting up metal detectors, you know, and all that. That was the preparation in that day for the president to come to town. It was exciting. In those ancient days, you prepared for the arrival of king by getting the roads ready and filling the potholes and the low places and cutting the places where it was bumpy and things like that, making the way straight for the Lord, making the uneven ground level. And John the Baptist, preaching in preparation for Jesus the Messiah to come on the scene, is talking about preparing your hearts. He's talking about repentance with that image of preparation, fixing the road, turning to God in humble repentance, and then bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance, he says, because the King of glory has come on the scene. It's important that we understand this theme of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The gospel is a manifestation of the glory of God. Glory is what we could say is the overarching supreme attribute of God. It's kind of like a summary of all of the attributes of God, His love, His holiness, His righteousness, His wisdom, all of these things. We think of beauty. We think of splendor, majesty. The Old Testament word meant heaviness, the weightiness of God and who He is, the greatness of God. We think of 1 Timothy 6 where we're told God dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And so without a true knowledge of God, without being able to see God's glory, you and I are really undone. And we can't arrive at the knowledge of the glory of God by our own efforts. I remember as a freshman in college taking Philosophy 101 and reading about the proofs of God. I'd never, I'd never heard of that. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let's find out how you prove God and the ontological proof and so forth. I just remember I was reading the proofs thinking, does this really prove that there's a God? I think I wrote a paper my freshman year on John 3.16, and I wasn't wanting to write papers in those days of the Bible. I thought, well, let's go to John 3.16 if we're going to talk about who God is. I think I have that paper in a file somewhere still. But the greatest philosophers of the world have utterly failed to comprehend the glory of God apart from the revelation of God through Jesus Christ in His Word. But the gospel tells us that God in His mighty condescension and His love has been pleased to reveal Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. What amazing consolation for us. We know from Psalm 19 that we're told, the heavens declare the glory of God. That, in a sense, the creation speaks. And often when someone comes to know Christ, especially as an adult, there's this new wonder that arises from beholding the creation that you've seen every day and thinking this is all reflecting the wisdom and the majesty of God. So, yes, the creation declares the glory of God, but even more supremely, 
Jesus Christ declares and reveals the glory of God so that we read in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's interesting, there's John near the beginning of the gospel telling that. And then in the high priestly prayer, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, in chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus praying says, I glorified you, the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying in his prayer that he has glorified the Father. The glory of God was revealed in Jesus' ministry, in his life. We think of his miracles, his power displayed, revealing something of the glory of God. In his teaching, he taught with authority and not as the scribes. We think of Jesus' holy life. We think of his love and compassion. But above all, Jesus' glory was revealed in his cross. Absolute omnipotence and power, and yet veiled in humanity, suffering and dying. What mystery! The angels long to look into these things. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Amazing. Isaiah is speaking about this. He's saying that the glory of God has been revealed. There's been prepare the way for the king. The glory of the Lord, verse 5, shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And we learn in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. There's coming a day when every eye will see the glory of God. Men and women, boys and girls, when Jesus returns, everyone will see something of the glory of God, and it will either be unto salvation and great rejoicing, or it will be unto great sorrow and condemnation. There will be those who will, will wail and cry out to the mountains to fall on them because of the wrath of the Lamb. And so we see the third point in light of the glory of God. The only right response is to behold your God, to look to Jesus Christ in faith. The only right response to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is to trust in Jesus Christ, to behold your God. Notice that we see this progression of thought. In verses 6 through 8, we see a voice crying, uh, and Isaiah says, what shall I cry? This voice tells him to cry, and he says, what shall I cry? And he says, cry that all flesh is grass, and the beauty of it is like the flower of the field, talking about the grass and the flower withering. That is the essential nature of all of us. We are but a breath. We are like a mist. We are like the grass that is there in the early morning, but in an arid place like Palestine, it, it could wilt. It could burn away by the end of the day. But the word of our God will stand forever. And so Isaiah is to declare the trustworthiness of God's word. The gospel is a summary of the word of God in Scripture. 
But what is the exact content of that word? Verse 9, go up on a high mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. I think that's where that hymn is from. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Look to your God. Behold your God. The content of that word is an exhortation to look, to gaze upon in trust, in reverential awe, in faith in their God, revealed, we know, revealed in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God. And the emphasis here in verses 10 and 11 is that this God, this God-man is both Sovereign King and tender shepherd of our souls. Isn't that an amazing thing? Doesn't that bring the incarnation of Jesus into focus? Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. This is a God of power, of omnipotence. And we know that one day Jesus will come to judge the world. That power will be revealed to all but it was veiled in flesh. And so you could also say, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. The tender shepherd of his sheep, the one who does not break the bruised reed. And how much we all are bruised reeds. Maybe in your situation right now with serious suffering, maybe with deep sorrow, maybe with crushing, chronic issues going on in your life. But here we're told the mighty God, both the sovereign king and the tender shepherd, it brings to mind Philippians 2, humbling himself to take on flesh, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Jesus Christ taking on human flesh. The only right response to the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is to behold Him, to gaze upon Him and His all-sufficient work, to trust in Him alone, turning away from looking at ourselves, turning away from looking at our supposed good works, turning away from looking at the problems of this life, all the typical problems of our lives, turning away from the empty idolatries of this life and instead with wholehearted, whole person turning from sin, entrusting ourselves to the God who has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the shepherd of our souls. I was thinking about this this week, and I couldn't help but think, what's an analogy that, that honors the king like this? Think of the king coming, and I couldn't help but think of the Philadelphia Eagles victory parade last year, last winter, the whole city of Philadelphia turning out for their conquering king or team, I should say, uh, probably a little bit over the board in terms of worship and idolatry, I would say, but that's the idea, the the king coming down, or maybe the ticker tape parade for General Eisenhower after World War II and the faithful troops who were were victorious. Well, the king has come. 
He is coming again, the glory of God revealed. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for opening our eyes, taking the veil off of our eyes to the glory of Christ. Thank you for the great comfort of the gospel. Help us this week to live in light of it. For anyone who may be here who hasn't trusted in you, Lord, let them seek you. Seek to trust in your word and the promise of the gospel there. And Lord, help us to look at our lives with this true perspective of who you are, of your glory, of your grace to us, and so be enabled to persevere, to run the race, the race set before us, to continue to abide in Christ, whatever suffering might come our way, whatever might good, good things might be coming our way. Lord, to keep these all in perspective because we know and have seen the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.